I love the story I heard recently about a magician who worked on a cruise ship in the Caribbean. And uh, the audience was, as you can imagine, different each week. So the magician repeated the same tricks over and over again. Unfortunately for him, there was a small problem and the, pa- the uh, captain's parrot happened to be sitting in on each of these performances. And after several shows, he began to understand how the magician did each trick. So in the midst of his trick, he would yell out loud. He said, look, it's under the same hat. Look, he's hiding the flowers under the table. Look, hey, where are all the cards are the same. And so this continued to go on and on, but there was nothing the magician could do because obviously it was the uh, captain's parrot. So as uh, fate would have it, the ship goes down in a shipwreck and the magician found himself floating on a piece of board and wood out in the midst of the Caribbean. And uh, as you can imagine, with his luck, the parrot happens to be sitting there with him. They're looking at each other, staring at each other for three days with absolute hatred and resentment. Finally, after three days, the parrot looked at the magician and he said this. He said, okay, I give up. Where's the boat? (laughs) Oh, I love that. Oh, where's the boat? Some of us are like that, aren't we? A little stubborn, we hold out, and uh, no matter what the evidence is, we just refuse to change our position. On a serious note, ours is an age of cynicism and uh, doubt. We're uncomfortable when confronted by a person who is certain of their position, who is certain of their beliefs, who are certain of the facts. And that reminds me of a recent interview that took place, maybe some of you saw it, on ABC News, where Diane Sawyer recently interviewed independent counsel Kenneth Starr. And in the midst of her interview, she made a statement that stuck out among the rest of the interview. Uh, and basically, she said this. She said, Judge Starr, the American public has a fear of those who claim to be absolutely certain of their position. There's a hesitancy to believe those who have no doubts. With that in mind, do you have any doubts at all with regard to the case that you have presented? To which he responded, absolutely none. It's important for us to consider that our judicial system is one that's operated on the basis of what's called reasonable doubt. Actually, it goes even further than that. It says to go beyond a reasonable doubt. Not some doubt, not a little doubt, not a slight doubt, not a possible doubt, but beyond a reasonable doubt. Would a reasoning person, as they examined the evidence that was laid before them, come to a certain conclusion? Not beyond any doubt at all, but beyond a reasonable doubt. Beyond the preponderance of the evidence that's laid out, is there still beyond any reasonable doubt? Now, the reason that I bring that up is that I'm convinced that mankind likes doubt. Regardless of how unlikely or how minute, we like doubt so that we can hold on to our beliefs regardless of how weak our position. We want to believe what we want to believe, so don't try to change my mind with such things as facts and evidence. I'm going to believe what I believe. I'll give you an illustration. Occasionally, we'd have some people come knocking to our, on our front door, and they would espouse a certain belief. Some of them riding bikes, some of them with white shirts and ties, some of them from other persuasive belief structures. And they would knock on the door and they would try to convince me or whoever of the fact that uh, they know what they believe. And the question that I always ask right off the bat is this. If I can demonstrate to you 
that what you believe is wrong, are you willing to change your belief? If I can demonstrate to you that what you believe is wrong, are you willing to change your belief? And 99% of the time they say, no. So at that point it's easy to say, have a nice day. (laughs) There's nothing to discuss. Because you're not open to listen. So what are we going to discuss? I know what I believe. I've become convinced of it without any doubts whatsoever. I am absolutely certain of what I believe. People don't like to hear that because it sounds arrogant. But there's nothing wrong with being confident as to what you've come to believe if indeed you've done your homework and you've done the research and you've checked into the facts and the facts overwhelmingly convince you that what you believe is true. I would hope that all of us would be open-minded that any person that says, if I can convince you that what you believe is wrong, are you willing to change your beliefs? Absolutely. Because I am committed to discover the truth. I want to know the truth. I'm not walking into it with any kind of bias. I'm not walking into it hoping that certain situation will come out of all of it. I want to know the truth and, the, and whatever that is, that's what the end result's going to be. The point is that we need to become people who examine and weigh the preponderance of evidence laid out before us and then adjust, if necessary, our beliefs accordingly. For century, many critics of the Bible, specifically this book of Daniel, held the position that Daniel had to be written after the events recorded took place. Their reasoning, no human being could have possibly predicted with such great accuracy the events which ultimately would transpire throughout human history. That is why they refused to believe it. Their conclusion was Daniel had to have been written after the facts because it was troubling to them to consider the other alternative. And that was the Bible is, as it claims to be, the written word of God. The only conclusion they could come to was one of two. And they enter into it saying, I believe that the Bible is simply a book that's written by men. Therefore, men could have never written what we find there unless they wrote it after the facts. Or the second is, I'm going into it with an open mind. I'm going to examine the evidence. And then I will come to conclusions as to what I believe to be the source of the Bible. In Daniel chapter 9, this particular passage was very troubling for many years to those who criticized the biblical text. The authorship, the dating, caused them very, very great perplexity and problems because they did not want to have to deal with what we find here written today. And so as we look at this, we're going to ask the question, why is this passage so troubling to those who hold the position that the Bible is simply a work written by men? Why is it so troubling to those who doubt the datings of the writings? And I think as you go through this, you're going to find very quickly why it's so troubling to them. And then the question that you have to ask yourself is this. Are there things in life in which we can be absolutely certain? To that I answer, absolutely. And one of them, as we will see, is the Word of God. In Daniel chapter 9, starting with verse 20, we'll look at six things that will be brought to our attention as we examine what we began to look at last week, which is the 70-week prophecy of Daniel as it's become known. And we read this starting with verse 20. says, Now while I was confessing, this is Daniel speaking, while, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer... 
Then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and he talked with me and he said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. And I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to steal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. If you were with us last week, you realize that the causes behind this prophecy are outlined for us as he goes and he approaches this. If you recall, Daniel was troubled in his question and had questions as to God's plan for the nation of Israel. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the word of God was accurate, it was reliable, it was trustworthy. And as God had revealed to Daniel in chapter 2, the vision of world history, he saw that the world would be dominated by Gentile nations. And this was troubling to Daniel because as he read through the scriptures, he realized also that God at the same time promised at the end of the 70-year captivity in Babylon that they would be returning to Jerusalem and they would return to the land of Israel. And so as he struggled with this, he weighed the differences of how could both of these things all take place at the same time? How can God in one point say that there's going to be Gentile world domination and at the same time say that Israel would return to the land and the, and the city of Jerusalem would be rebuilt? And so he struggled with that. And as all of us, as we struggle with anything in life, the first thing that he did was he searched the word of God to discern truth, to discover what God had already recorded. And then when there were still questions, the next step he took was he went to God and prayed about it. Said, God, I don't understand... If any man lacks wisdom, I do. Here I am. Send some to me because I don't have a handle on what's going on. And that's what he did. And God, as he began to pray, God dispatched Gabriel, the messenger, an angel of God, to give this particular message to Daniel. The Bible says that the reason that God answered Daniel's prayer is because Daniel was greatly loved by God. And it's the same reason that God answers our prayers. Because you and I are greatly loved by God. And He wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. He wants us to know with great certainty. certainty. He wants us to discern and understand His truth. He hasn't kept any secrets from us. He's laid it all out. Said, what do you want to know? Here it is. Dig in and find out. And as he goes into the word of God, God begins to reveal truth to him. And it's fascinating as we look at this. And so as we look at what the answer was, as Daniel prayed, the answer is sent from God through the messenger at this particular case was the messenger Gabriel. And he said this, 77s, as we learned last time, are 70 sets of sevens or 490 years. 490 years are decreed, determined by God for your people and your city. That was the specific prayer of Daniel. What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to our, our, our land? What's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem? He says 490 years are determined by God, set by God, set in time through all of eternity. It's not going to change. It's, it's the, the, the will of God. He says to finish, and here's what he said. Number one, to finish the transgression. What's he talking about? He's saying 490 years and God will finish the transgression. We talked in great depth about the transgression of the nation of Israel was simply this, that God sent his son into the world, that God sent a savior into the world. God had sent him into, into the world and, and among his own people and his own did not receive him. The transgression of Israel, as we see, was that they rejected the Messiah who was promised by God. Jesus Christ came with great, uh, with great signs and wonders that were attributed only to God himself. When John the Baptist was in prison and he was doubting, and there we go again, as far as doubt is concerned, hey, I have doubts, you have doubts, we all have doubts. The interesting thing is this, but are they reasonable doubts? 
and are the answers given to us? What is, what is the preponderance of the evidence when it comes to our doubts? John the Baptist, a great man of God. Hey, good news for all of us is he had doubts. We all struggle with doubts. I do. I know that you do. And I know that he did. The wonderful news from God is this. John the Baptist, when he struggled with doubts, sent his disciples to Jesus and said, Hey, ask him if he's the one that we've been waiting for. Is he really the promised one of God? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Savior of the world? Is he the long-awaited hope of Israel? Is he the one? And when his disciples went to Jesus, Jesus simply said to them, Hey, you go back and you tell John this, that the blind can see, that the lame are raised, uh, that, the de- that the dead are raised, that, that the lame also are raised. And, and basically the bottom line was you go back and tell them that the word of God has been fulfilled in the things that Jesus himself did. And so the bottom line was the preponderance of evidence was so great, they just went back and simply told them, hey, you know, the, the Lord says to tell you this. Don't you remember all the stuff he did? Yeah, has it ever been done in human history? No. Who was it attributed to? It would be attributed to God himself, that it would be a sign that we could believe that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be, God incarnate. And so that was the answer to the doubt. Look at the evidence, examine the facts, and then come to your conclusions. The book of 1 John, as we went through a study in 1 John, I remember specifically a passage that dealt with when your heart condemns you. And there are many times where we doubt our relationship with God. And the, and the Word of God goes back and says, if and when the, t- the time comes when your heart condemns you, and it says, how can you really be a child of God? How can you really be a Christian? How can, you, how can God really love you? When your heart condemns you, the Bible says, then you go back to the Word of God and you camp on the promises of God. Because this isn't about us. This is about Him. This is about His promises. This is about His Word. This is about His trustworthiness. This is about His reliability. It has nothing to do with you and me. Why? Because when we're faithless, He's still faithful. That's good news. And so as we look at this, we begin to realize that He will finish the transgression. There will be a time that comes in history when the nation of Israel will look upon Him whom they have pierced and they will mourn and they will reap and they will embrace Him as Messiah that they didn't do the first time around. The second thing is we're told it says He'll finish transgression. He'll put an end to sin, which has to do with judgment. There will be a point in time in history where they will be judged for their rejection of Christ. If they receive Him, they will be blessed and the blessings will fall upon them. If they reject Him continually, then God will judge them for their sin of rejection. It says He will atone for wickedness. The bottom line is it talks about, and basically we're looking at prophecy, things that would happen in the future. The substitutionary death of Christ on the cross for the sins of the world for those who believe Him. The atonement of death, the atonement of wickedness has to do with God is satisfied. It's a big word called propitiation in the Bible that has to do with God being sacrificed, uh, satisfied with what Jesus did on His sacrifice on our behalf to atone for wickedness. And then it goes into talking about to bring in everlasting righteousness. There's a time coming where Jesus Christ will take his stand here on the earth. For unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. And the Bible says that upon his shoulders, the government will be upon his shoulders. In Daniel chapter 2, the same vision that we saw before was that Jesus, it was that God had prophesied, he had, had dreamed that he had shared with Nebuchadnezzar that one day there will be a rock that comes out of heaven who will establish his kingdom here on earth and his kingdom would have no end. A kingdom of everlasting righteousness, a time of a thousand years where Jesus Christ himself will reign on the face of the earth and he will reign righteously. He goes on and says to seal up vision and prophecy, everything that God says will come true exactly as God says that it will and to anoint the most holy which has to do with the temple that will be rebuilt in Jerusalem, which has to do with the sacrificial system that will take place. All of those things are being foretold 530 some, 537 years before Christ. 
Everything that we see is being told to Daniel 500 and some years before Jesus Christ ever came to the earth. That's why it troubles critics when they look at it. We've got to find a different date because if it's really the date that, that, that they're claiming that it is, we've got some things to deal with that are very troubling. Now the question is, when is all this going to take place? And that's exactly the question that was in Daniel's mind and exactly the question I think that you and I struggle with is, when is it all going to happen? When's it all going to take place? And, and that's exactly what's answered in Daniel 9, 25 and 26 where we read this. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. The command that begins the prophecy as we look at this, and I want you to look at this carefully, he says, know this and understand this, or discern this. To know and discern beyond any doubt at all, beyond any reasonable doubt at all, God says, I want you to know with great certainty what the timetable is for the events which I'm about to share with you. When does the clock start to tick as far as this is concerned? And as you can see this, it starts with a command. Now, it's interesting as we go down through all of this, it's important to realize that from the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince or until the Anointed One, the Ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. It's critical for us to understand this prophecy. In order to understand the prophecy, we've got to understand the command that's being issued to rebuild Jerusalem. Just as in Daniel chapter 2, if you remember the visions of world history, Daniel was given the answer to when the timetable started when he said this, you, O Nebuchadnezzar, what? Are the head of gold. It all starts with you and everything will follow. So we know that Babylon was the first nation that God had revealed. The second nation was the Medo-Persian Empire. Then we know that the Greeks came after that. The Romans came after that. But we have to have a starting point. Otherwise, we don't know where to go. And so what he says is that you are the head of gold. That's when it all starts. We have the same uh, language that's used here. The same determination as far as when it all starts. Listen carefully. He's saying this. The clock will begin to tick on the seven sevens and also on the 62 sevens when the command is issued to rebuild Jerusalem. So we need to know when that command was issued. Now, historically, we know there are four commands and that's what's troubling because which one are you going to go with? The first command was issued by Cyrus in 538 B.C. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles 36. For those who have taken notes and want to dig in on your own, read 2 Chronicles 36, verses 22 and 23. That was the first command. The second command was really uh, a command that reaffirmed the command of Cyrus, and that was by Darius I in 512 B.C., and that's found in the book of Ezra, chapter 6. You can read about it there. The third command was by Artaxerxes, who in, that commanded in his seventh year that also the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But the fourth command was by a gentleman named Artaxerxes Longimanus in 445 BC. And we're going to take a look at that in a minute because now we're troubled with, okay, here's four commands and we know that the clock's going to start ticking from one of them, but which one is it? Well, as you read and discover throughout in the Word of God what was involved in these commands, you'll find that the first two commands had to do with rebuilding the temple in the city. There was the rebuilding of the temple. The third command of Artaxerxes had to do with the fact that it had to do with the financing of the temple offerings or the sacrifices. The fourth command is the one I want you to take a look at with me and turn back to Nehemiah chapter 2. A few books back, Nehemiah chapter 2. And this is the fourth command that took place. Now, you've got to understand, the first three commands say nothing about the rebuilding of the city itself. 
It has to do with rebuilding the temple. It has to do with raising money or the financial uh, arrangements as far as the sacrificial system was concerned. But none of them had to do with rebuilding the, t- the, the uh, city itself. For those of you who have gone through and studied the book of Nehemiah, you know that Nehemiah is a book that has to do with rebuilding the wall around the city. And in Nehemiah chapter 2, starting with verse 1, it came about in the month Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So we've got the 20th year, important date, because he began his reign in 465. Now this is 445. So it began, and here we are in the 20th year of his reign, that wine was before him. This is Nehemiah speaking. He says, I took up the wine, he was the cupbearer, and gave it to the king. He says, now I had not been sad in, the pra- in his presence. And there was a good reason for it, because the cupbearer, you know, was not allowed to reign on the parade of the king. He stood before the king all day long. He should have been in good spirits. You know, there's nothing worse than having somebody around you who is just draining your energy all day long. So the cupbearer was always an upbeat kind of a guy. Interesting, considering the fact that his job was to taste the king's food and drink his drinks before the king was given it in case anyone was trying to kill him. So that's a fascinating thing, isn't it? I don't know if there's any poison in here, but whoever cooked this, it's killing me just eating it. But, uh, but, but so that's what his job was. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. That's why. Because he wasn't allowed to be down in front of the king. He says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Good comeback. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I immediately prayed to God of heaven. There's a quickie prayer. Said, uh, and I said to the king, if it please the king and if your servants found favor before you, send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it, that I may rebuild the city. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when you will return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that I may allow, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was upon me. Now we read this and we realize at that particular time that a decree or a command was issued to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Now it wasn't to rebuild the temple, it was to rebuild the city. Not only was it to rebuild the city, but more importantly it was to rebuild the wall around the city. You need to recognize and understand that as long as there was no wall around a city, there was no military threat to the one who was giving the authority to go ahead and to rebuild a city. And so for them to allow the wall to be built, now go back to Daniel chapter 9 and read something very carefully. The words of the prophecy that we see here in verse 25, it says, You are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree, there's the command to rebuild the city, right? To rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, which we're going to talk about in a second because that's the culmination of the prophecy. He says, the issue that's there, he says, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again. Listen, with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. That's the clue that we need to help us understand when the clock began to tick. With plaza, which is the street, or it says in some translation, with streets and trench, plaza and moat. You don't build a plaza unless the city itself is rebuilt. And you can't build a trench or a moat unless the wall is built. So we've got the answer that we're looking for as to when the clock began to tick as far as the prophecy is concerned. Everybody everybody follow what's going on here? It's really important. Some of you are thinking, what does this have to do with anything? It has a lot to do with everything. So just trust me, hang in there with me for a little bit. But the bottom line is this, that we look at this and it has plaza and moat. 
Now, we know it only took 52 days, if you study the book of Nehemiah, for the wall to be rebuilt. But what's fascinating is it took almost 49 years for the city to be complete. Which is interesting because look what it says. There will be seven sevens, which is 49 years. Which brings us to the end of the Old Testament, by the way, and to, and to Malachi. And Malachi and Nehemiah both testified that these were very troublesome times. So it takes us to 49 years, which is the end of the Old Testament. And now we read this. And 62 sevens, which is a prolonged period of time, which will lead us to the next point, And that's this. What is the culmination or the end of the prophecy? No one understand with certainty. From the issuing of the decree in 445 B.C. to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, the ruler, anointed one comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, or 483 total years. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in the times of trouble. Now, after the 62 sevens, in addition to the seven sevens, so the first 49, now the 62 sevens lead us up to this amazing prophecy. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. And desolations have been decreed. Where, where are we heading with all this? After seven sevens and sixty-two sevens will be the coming of Messiah. That's what it says. So you are to know and discern that the issuing the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and sixty two weeks. What's interesting is, as I was going through this, there was a man who worked for Scotland Yard. His name is Sir, uh, Sir Robert Anderson. In fact, he was one of the famous detectives who worked on Jack, the Jack the Ripper case. And what's fascinating was to look at this because he's one of the most brilliant minds when it comes to evidential uh, discovery and things of that nature. And uh, his life work was the book of Daniel. Specifically, the mathematics that we find here in Daniel chapter 9. Some of the greatest work that's ever come on Daniel chapter 9 was written by this gentleman who was a detective, who was a mathematician, who was a man who looked at the preponderance of evidence and came to conclusions based on that. And he did the mathematics, as we see here, the coming of Messiah the Prince. Now, it says, from the decree of Artaxerxes until Messiah the Prince, which is a phrase that indicates it will be a public event that will be known by all. He says, until that, it would be 480. Years. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 28. Luke 19, starting with verse 28. You will find no other event that has taken place in the ministry of Jesus Christ that even comes close to paralleling what we're about to read in Luke 19, starting with verse 28. And in fact, there are many times, and as you're reading through your Bible, sometimes, have you ever, have you ever when you're reading through... Um, kind of thought it was odd that there were times where Jesus would tell somebody um, that he had just done some something great. Maybe it was that he healed them or, or he cast demons out or whatever. Uh, and there were times where he would tell them, um, you know what, go ahead and go, but don't tell anybody. Isn't, didn't you, didn't you always find that fascinating that he did that? You go ahead and go, but don't tell anybody. Which I always thought was kind of interesting because it was like, how could they not tell anybody after what they just experienced? But Jesus said, you know, don't tell anybody. The reason that he said, don't tell anybody, because he said this, the day hasn't come. What day was that? The day that was determined by God. Don't forget, God's timetable is perfect. God's never early. He's never late. He's always on time. This was a time that was determined by God. What we're about to read is so critical to our understanding of the reliability of the Bible. I want every person to pay attention, listen up, and grasp this, because this is the greatest truth that you'll ever hear. God determined and set a day. 
He told Daniel about this day, 400, when the clock started, it was 483 years, but it was actually even more than that because it was in 537 that Daniel was given the vision. It wasn't until 445 B.C. that the clock began to tick. So we're looking at a period of time of almost 600 and some years that God said and predicted with amazing accuracy what we're about to read. He said, and after Jesus had said these things, he was going ahead and he was ascending into Jerusalem. And he came about that when he approached Bethany and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two disciples ahead, saying, Go into the village opposite you on which you are entered. You'll find a colt that's tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Zechariah 9.9 predicts that. And if anyone asks you why are you untying it, thus you shall speak, The Lord has need of it. And those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. Duh, no kidding. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. End of question. End of argument. They took it. They brought it to Jesus. They threw their garments on the colt. They put Jesus on it. Was going, they were spreading their garments on the road. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. They recognized who he was. And they said, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. There was a multitude who were praising God. And the Pharisees came to him and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Don't you realize what they're doing? They are praising you as if you were God. Tell them to stop it. And Jesus said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones themselves will cry out. And when he approached the city, he saw it and he wept over it, saying, If you had known this day, even you, the things which make for your peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize what? The time of your visitation. Do you follow that? Do you follow what's going on here? The time and the day. This was the day that was foretold by God through the prophet Daniel and through Zechariah that this was the day that God would announce His Messiah had come. And Jesus, as he looked at Jerusalem, he wept over the fact that they rejected him. And he said, if you, only you, knew this very day, that today was the day of your visitation. If, the the, the ifs of prophecy are fascinating. If only they would have received him. But we know that the Bible says they wouldn't receive him. That God knew that he would be rejected. That he was the chief cornerstone and he was rejected. The Bible says he came unto his own and his own received him not. This wasn't a secondary plan of God to go ahead and, oh, I better change things now because they rejected me. They rejected Messiah. God knew. But he also knew that he had given them freedom to choose and they could have chose to receive him as Messiah. But they rejected him. And Jesus, as he looked, he wept over what was taking place. Why? Because he also prophesied that, you know what was going to happen? There was going to be trouble in their city. That they would be punished because of their rejection. That they would be disciplined by God. And God would continue to use Gentile nations to discipline the nation of Israel for their rejection. The rejection is what? The transgression. Their transgression. The transgression of rejecting Christ. Now, according to the Bible, they could have known exactly, listen to me, they could have known exactly the day that was told to Daniel. According to the time, state, the time schedule we have, and according to the work that Sir Robert Anderson did, was it was very simple. 
He sat down and went, okay, we got seven times seven or seven, seven weeks of seven, which is 49 years. We've got 62 times seven, which is 434 years. That's 483 years. Notice times 360 days, which is a Jewish calendar. There's 360 days in a Jewish calendar. It's, it's 173,880 days. Listen to me. From Artaxerxes' command to the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, the day that God had told the nation that He would send Messiah and it would be a public event was exactly 173,880 days to the day. We know that Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem on the 6th of April, 32 AD, exactly as God said it would take place. This is not a hard prophecy to understand. We know the timetable. We know the mathematics. The question that I have for you is this. How did they miss it? How did they miss it? Consider this. The same way we miss it. They didn't spend enough time studying the Word of God. They didn't spend enough time searching the Scripture. They didn't spend enough time examining the preponderance of the evidence. What they did was they had their own beliefs. And they could not believe that Jesus Christ was the promised one, the Messiah. They held firm to their beliefs regardless of the evidence, in spite of the evidence, despite the evidence. They didn't care what the evidence was. But you see, the simple doubt of John the Baptist was answered when Jesus said, consider the evidence. He said, it's good enough for me. But for those who held out on their own beliefs because they didn't want to believe what, what was being presented to them, they didn't want to believe it. And they didn't care about the evidence. But you know what? There was a man, Joseph of Arimathea. There was another man, Nicodemus, who was on the council. They were men who were a part of this council group that would refuse to believe that Jesus was Messiah. But as they searched the Scripture, and as they looked at the Word of God, God rewarded them for their diligent, diligent study of the Word of God because it was Joseph of Arimathea, as he searched the Scripture and as he looked at the Psalms, realized that one day a rich man would take the body of our Lord, even though they didn't understand any of it. He, they realized that one day a rich man would take him and he would provide the gravesite. Joseph recognized that, you know what? He himself could be the fulfillment of the prophecy of God's Word and went out and bought a burial plot and took Jesus from the cross and took his body and laid it in his tomb exactly as the word of God said. Nicodemus, as he searched the scripture, realized too, after his encounter with Jesus Christ, that he knew nothing about what he thought he believed, but he began to examine the, the objective evidence. And you know what he did when he was confronted by the fact that he was wrong in what he thought? He changed his beliefs. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ until he examined the word of God. And when the word of God and the evidence was overwhelming, guess what he did? He changed what he believed. He was open to the truth. But not everybody missed it. There were multitudes that stood along the side of the road praising God. Hosanna to God in the highest. Blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. They were praising God. Why? Because they saw enough evidence that they didn't need to listen to all the wisdom of the world. All the intellectual religious people who had their own spin on everything. I mean, even a child. That's why Jesus said, hey, come to me as a child. Childlike faith. A child sees the evidence and goes, that's enough for me. As we get older and we begin to hang on to what we believe, we don't want to let go because we don't want to admit we're wrong. And that's a sin of pride. That's the thing that kept us from God to begin with. God said, you worship me. God says, you do it my way. Man said, we're doing it our way. We'll do it the way that we want. God says, don't eat of the fruit. Man says, that's the one I'm eating of. You can't tell me what to do. God says, the day you do that, you will surely die. And that's exactly what happened to man. 
Through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and with sin came death. Do you understand how important it is that we examine the evidence before we come to any conclusions? The hardest people to deal with are religious people who have spent their life trying to please God. They go to church, they give money, they do this, they do that, and they get to the end of the road and they say, God, I hope that I'm good enough. And the Bible says, you'll never be good enough. Because it's not by works that we're saved, it's by faith in Christ. It's by what Jesus did for us on the cross. And it's a simple matter of believing what God has to say. And then you've got people, they struggle and they go, you mean all my life I've wasted my time trying to please God? Exactly. That's a bummer. Why didn't somebody tell me earlier? Someone did, probably. But you weren't willing to examine the evidence. Because you wanted to believe what you wanted to believe. The evidence is there and it's incredible as we look at this. important to note, there was multitudes who were praising God and they did not miss. They did not miss. Now notice also... Another important prophecy that takes place, and he says this, the cutting off of the Messiah, after the 62 sevens and the seven previously, look, after this happens, after when? After the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, you know what was going to happen to him? He was going to be cut off. It's a term that has to do with execution. He would be executed as a criminal. Wow! Psalm 22, we see the same thing. Rabbinical teachers would take the first verse of a psalm and they would use it as a teaching, as an instruction technique when they were dealing with students. And if you recall, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said this, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Any good rabbinical student would have sat there and went, wait, what is he quoting? He's quoting Psalm 22. And they would have immediately went to, to the scrolls and they would have looked at it and they would have began to read it and they would have read exactly what God says was going to happen to Messiah. That he would be crucified. Now listen to me. Jesus Christ was crucified and the Bible foretold of crucifixion before the Romans ever even existed. This was given to Daniel when the Medo-Persian Empire was in power. The Greeks had not come to power and the Romans had not come to power. And crucifixion was a means of execution that the Romans instituted. And in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, the Word of God clearly talks about crucifixion. What's the odds of that? This must have been written after all this happened because I fear to consider the other alternative that maybe the, the Bible is as it claims. It's the written word of God. And I can't fathom that. So we have to come up with a loophole. That's the reasoning of man, isn't it? We don't want to know the truth. You can't convince us of the truth. We'll hang on our own version of the truth. And we'll split it down party lines. I just threw that, see if anybody's still with me. <laughs> All right. But notice that. After the 62 sevens, after the seven sevens, the anointed one, the Messiah, will be executed. They didn't understand it. Jesus in Matthew 16, 21, he said he began, from that day forward, he began to tell the disciples that in three days he would go into Jerusalem and that he would be executed. He continually tried to tell them, hey, look, this is all part of the plan of God. I am going to be killed. They didn't understand it. And the reason they didn't understand it was they, they, they didn't comprehend it. And that, my friends, too, is a prophecy of Jesus that also identified the age of grace. Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. And it was the first mention of the fact that, you know what, that's okay. Because when I'm cut off, 
God is going to issue in an age of grace. The Bible says in Romans 11 that God would use Gentiles to make the Jews jealous that they could come to Christ and they could believe in Him and be a child of God to those who believe in His name. The age of grace is laid out there and it's important that we understand it. Notice what he says. The people of the ruler to come, which we need to understand, which has to do with the Romans. The people, not the ruler who is to come, the people of the ruler to come in the future, which was the Romans, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. And Jesus said, you know what, in three days I, w- I will, be, ra- I will raise, be raised again. And they looked at him and said, you're a nutcase because it took 46 years for the temple to be rebuilt. And you're saying it's going to be destroyed and three days later it's going to be raised again? They misunderstood and thought he was talking about the temple, but he was talking about the temple of his body, that in three days he would be raised from the grave. And so we were looking at this going, man, what's this guy talking about? It took Herod 46 years to rebuild the temple. And Jesus here prophesies because they rejected Jesus Christ that the Romans would come in and destroy Jerusalem. They would destroy the temple of God and they wouldn't even leave one stone upon another. That's how absolutely destructive they were. And in 70 AD, it took place exactly as Jesus said, exactly as Daniel was told 537 537 years before Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm starting to catch on to something here. Notice the completion of God's judgment on the city. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Who is he? We'll talk about him. He is the one who is to come. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured upon him. At this point, we're told what will take place in the final week or the seven years of the 490 years determined by God. And here's where we get mixed up and here's what I need to help you understand. After the 69 weeks, Messiah was cut off. So after the triumphal entry, Jesus was executed on the cross. Now there is still a seven-year period of time that's missing in the 490 years. We've only covered 483. Where does this seven years fit? And here's where we get mixed up. Because basically what's happening is, from the time of Jesus Christ's execution on the cross until the beginning of this next seven-year period of time, there is a huge time gap. They don't run consecutively. It stops. We know from the Bible that in Romans chapter 11, God calls it the age of of grace, the fullness of the Gentiles. Acts chapter 2, it's the same thing. It's the great window of opportunity that we find ourselves in today. From that day until the beginning of the next seven-year period of time is a wonderful age of opportunity for all who would believe in Jesus Christ to be entered into the kingdom of God. What a great period of time that we're in in human history. Now what we're talking about at this point is there's going to be another seven-year period of time and at the end of that seven-year period of time is when all the things that we talked about last week, Jesus Christ coming, setting up His kingdom, uh, the the age of righteousness, the atonement of sin, uh, the end of the transgression, all of that will take place at the end of the next seven-year period of time. So that's where we're at and this is where we're heading with it. It's important to recognize and understand. What does God reveal about this period of time? He reveals a key person who will be one of the people of the one who is to come. Notice what it says. It says, Of the one who is to come, the Romans who destroyed the city of Jerusalem, there is one who will come from them. We've already talked about him. We'll talk about him more in Daniel chapter 11. But here's the things that are outlined that we'll look at quickly. Number one, there will be a future prince, an individual who will rise out of all of this mess in the future. And it's a covenant of a future prince who is to come. Where is he to come from? He's to come from the people of Rome. We've already established as we've gone through the study so far that it will be a resurrection or a revived Roman Empire. There will be ten nations in, in, in the Europe that will form together an allegiance or a coalition. And this particular gentleman will be the head of those ten nations. 
The covenant that he makes, we already see his relationship with the destruction of the city and the sanctuary. He is a Roman. We already saw that because Rome is the one in 70 AD under Titus that destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple. So this man will come from among those people. He will come from, from among those ten nations. Now, what we need to recognize and understand is this. It doesn't mean he's going to be a European. It means that he has European, he comes from European descent, but he can come from anywhere in the world as long as he comes from that European descent. He could come from the United States. He could come from Canada. He can come from Australia. He can come from anywhere where there are Europeans who left at some point to go out into other lands. So he's not necessarily uh, relegated to just those European nations. We need to recognize and understand that. That's important. His reliability in making a treaty, we see that as we go through. If you've got your Bibles, it says he will make a firm covenant. It'll be a firm covenant. He'll be reliable. They will trust him. The nation of Israel will turn to him and he will make a firm covenant with the people, which indicates this, that somewhere along the line, Israel is going to lose her, her base of support from other nations. Somewhere along the line, Israel will lose her base of support from other nations and she will be defenseless, which makes me concerned about where as a country the United States fits into all of this. Because the reason that Israel turns to this prince who is to come is because she needs to be defended and this person appears at first glance to be trustworthy and powerful enough to be able to offer protection to the nation of Israel. The reliability is there. He will make a firm covenant with the one, with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, notice, he will put a stop. Now, in the middle of the week, we already know is seven years. In the middle of the seven years is three and a half years, 1,260 days. We know from Revelation, we know from Second Thessalonians, right? So in the middle of that seven-year seven period of time, at the end of three and a half years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings, meaning that there are going to be offering sacrifices once again in the nation of Israel. The, the temple will be there, or a temple or a synagogue. It's not the same temple that Christ will rebuild when he comes to earth, but it's a synagogue that sacrifices can be offered. He will allow Israel to go back to the Levitical sacrifice, sacrificial system. But at the end of that three and a half year period of time, everything's going to change. He's going to walk in and he's going to relocate himself from Europe. He's going to move down to Israel. He's going to take up a position in Jerusalem. And he's going to take up a position in the temple himself. We know it from 2 Thessalonians. And he's going to say at the three and a half year period of time, he's going, hey, you know what? I changed my mind. You will now worship me. Get all the sacrifices out of there. And you will worship me. Jesus said it was the abomination of the desolation. He said, it, he said for the nation of Israel, when you see that as a sign, he said, you get out of the city and you flee as fast as you can, Matthew chapter 24. And the reason for it was, is there is going to be tremendous, it's the age of great tribulation. But you know what? Now think about this. Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who we've already, already talked about, and we've already looked at, and the Bible's already told us about, that he would be coming one day, he did the exact same thing, didn't he? where he removed all the sacrificial uh, system out of the temple and he himself took up residence there and told the nation of Israel to worship him. Isn't it just like man? We always want to be worshipped as God. The sin of man is that we will not worship God, but we want to be worshipped ourselves. That's exactly what this guy will want to do. He'll move in. The removal of the temple sacrifices. His rebellion will be against God and the people of God. We learned that in our earlier uh, prophecy that he would speak harshly uh, of God and the people of God. He would persecute the people of God. And if it wasn't for God's timing, even all the elect would have been destroyed in this great time of tribulation. But what's fascinating as we look at this, notice what the Bible says. It says, And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until complete destruction. 
one that is, dec- that is decreed, determined by God, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. There's a day coming where God will enact his vengeance upon him. It's a terrible thing, a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Bible says, God says, that vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. There's a day coming when all who have opposed God and the works of God, all who rejected Jesus Christ, will be held accountable for that rejection of Christ. It's important as we look at this and you go, you know what, where are we going with all this? I want you to consider a couple of things in closing. I began our time together with the challenge that we need to be people who examine and weigh the preponderance of the evidence laid out before us and then adjust, if necessary, our beliefs accordingly. In this passage of Daniel, we see several prophecies that were fulfilled exactly as predicted. And these, as remarkable as they are, are only a handful of literally thousands that we find all throughout the Word of God. I want you to ask yourself a question as you consider what I'm sharing with you today. And that's this. Do I doubt the reliability of the Bible? If so, why? Do I doubt that the Bible is the Word of God? If so, why? Do I believe everything in the Bible is the written Word of God? If not, why not? Is my doubt reasonable? Or am I merely holding on to my beliefs for fear of the alternative? Many doubters have never even examined the evidence. I'm sure you've talked to them. I have. People say, well, I mean, the Bible is just a book written by men. Really? How would you come to that conclusion? Have you ever read it? Have you ever studied it? Have you ever examined it? Uh, No, but that's what I've heard. And I'm real comfortable believing that, by the way. Really? Well, there's contradictions in the Bible. Really? Which ones? Well, I don't know, but they've got to be there. Uh, I like some parts of it. Well, which parts? Well, the parts I'm not guilty of. Like those parts. Parts I'm guilty of really trouble me, so that can't be right. Then why does it trouble you? Huh? Well, why does it bother you? Think about it. Why do we still have men today who will hide what they do? If what they really believe that they did wasn't wrong, why wouldn't they just come out and say, hey, what I did was right? Why do you have a problem with it? Why do men still hide it? Because we're created in the image and likeness of God, and God puts in the heart of every man somewhere in there, somewhere hidden. And sometimes we become callous to it, but we have an understanding of right and wrong. We are who we are because God has created us in His image. We have a good idea of right and wrong because God has already ingrained that in our conscience. Now, we can sear that conscience and become so callous that we don't recognize right and wrong anymore. But there's a point in our heart that we understand that, you know what? The reason I lied about what I did was because what I did was wrong. Oh, if what you did was wrong, why'd you do it? Well, because I wanted to do it. Well, why are you hiding it now? Because I don't want to be accountable for my actions. Gee, that sounds familiar. Does anybody recognize that from the Garden of Eden? Hello, that's been man's problem from the beginning. God says something's right or wrong, and we say we'll determine ourselves. Thank you for offering anyway. Men and women, fulfilled prophecy is irrefutable evidence that the Bible is indeed unique, to say the least, and without equal. It claims with strong evidence, irrefutable evidence, to be the written word of God. The Bible says that all scripture is God-breathed and it is profitable for instruction, for teaching us, for rebuking us, telling us uh, when we are wrong, for correcting us, telling us how to get right. That means there are going to be points in our life where we believe something and we're wrong in what we believe and God is going to confront us in that and he's going to say, here's what's right, you need to change your belief. 
He says, and he's going to train us and give us everything that we need so we'll be adequately equipped to do what's right before God. It's interesting as we think of all this, you know, throughout the Bible we see words like, I have become convinced, and I know, you may know, you may know and understand, discern and understand, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, and the world may struggle with those of us who are certain of our beliefs, but I'll guarantee you this, I know whom I have come to believe in, and I have become persuaded that he is able to commit that which I've given to him unto that day meaning that I have put my trust and faith in Jesus Christ and I know the day of judgment is coming and because He died for my sins that I am not guilty before God because of what He has done for me, not because of anything that I have done for Him. I have know that and I have become persuaded of that. How? Because the more I study the Word of God, the more God's Spirit testifies with my spirit that I'm a child of God. The more I dig into the Word of God, the more I'm convinced of the uniqueness of the Word of God. That it is an absolutely miraculous book. That it is the Word of God in written form so that every one of us who are loved by God may know the truth and that the truth will set us free. If you do not want to be judged by God and held accountable for your actions, then God says believe and put your faith in Jesus Christ, your Lord and your Savior. Have you take advantage of this limited time offer? I don't know if you recognize it or not, but we are in that gap, that period of time that is the age of grace, that God has poured His Spirit out upon all of mankind, that whosoever would believe would come to become a child of God to those who believe in His name. It's a wonderful opportunity for us. We live in an age of grace. We live in an opportunity where we can extend that invitation to anyone who will listen. For Christ died for our sins, for those who believe. As we consider what's coming up as we celebrate the birth of Christ, we must never forget that it was in the fullness of time that God sent forth His Son. A Son, by the way, another predictive prophecy. In the fullness of time, just in the right time, God's timing, He sent forth His Son. Not just a Son, but He was born under a woman. That He would come into the world through a birth experience. That He would be a son and not a daughter. That He would be born and just not arrive on the scene. More predictive prophecy. He would be born under the law. Listen, in order that he might redeem or buy back those who were lost, those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Matthew one twenty one. we read this. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. In Luke 2, we read this. I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people, anybody that wants to. Receive this gift, this indescribable gift. He says, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. God offers to all who will receive this indescribable gift, the gift of God's forgiveness and eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is still death, but the free gift of God is still eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you have never received this gift, what better time to do it than today? To simply reach out. God, I'm guilty as charged. There's nothing I can do to get into heaven. I need your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be because I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond a reasonable doubt, that the evidence that you lay out in the Bible is trustworthy and reliable. It is not a book written by men or a compilation of books written by men. It is indeed, as you claim it is, the God-breathed, inspired Word of God written for our instruction, written for our rebuke, written for our correction, and written so that we can be right with you. For those of us who have already made that decision and and embraced the gift that God's given us in Christ, I'm going to challenge you to consider something 
And that is this. We miss so much of what God has to offer us because we simply don't take any time to dig into the Word of God to discover His truth. We live in a world that is more and more putting this underneath and espousing human philosophies and human psychology and human reasoning. But don't ever forget that all the human reasoning in the world is foolishness in the sight of God because God has chosen the foolish things to confound the wise. That there's nothing that is even close to equating what we have in the Word of God. And if you'll spend time discovering the truth of God's Word, I will also challenge you to do this, to be just like Daniel, to become people who not only hear the Word, but become doers every day in their life. Isn't it about time that we become doers of the Word and not hearers only? Father, we just want to thank you for your word. It's incredible. It's, I mean, just, it's, just, it's mind-boggling to consider that to the very day, 173,880 days later, that Jesus Christ would ride triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem, proclaiming that it was the day of his visitation to the nation of Israel. God, how incredible that is. And that's just that. And, and then afterwards, that Jesus would be cut off and executed as a criminal even before Rome came into existence, before crucifixion was even known to man. In Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, throughout your word, we read over and over again how you foretold of these events even before they took place so that we can put our faith and trust in the reliability of your word. God, we just thank you as we search the scripture that we're taught the truth, that you've given it to us as you told Daniel because we're greatly loved. And God, I just pray that each of us would understand the free gift that's offered, the eternal life that's given to us through Christ for those who believe and will receive Him. It's not by works of righteousness, for none of us are righteous. All of us have sinned and and fall short of the glory of God. It's by grace that we're saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift from you so that none of us will ever be able to boast. God, we just thank you. It's all about Jesus and none about us. God, you have chosen us with your great love. You've reached out and you've shared this with us. And we just thank you that you give us the freedom to choose. God, I just pray for those who struggle with that choice that they would make a wise choice because there's blessings with positive choices and there's consequences to those who reject this message and this gift that's given to you. God, we just thank you and we praise you as we look forward to this time where we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ that we'll never forget that your word predicted many, many hundreds of years before that it would take place exactly as you said so that your word of God, your word is reliable, trustworthy and that we can turn to it in every area of life and that we would become not only hearers of it, but doers also. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.